Because this fire persisted around this city for so long, this city of 90,000 people in northern Alberta, eventually the fire was described as a siege event for days and days. It came from every angle, depending on the wind. And the people fighting to save that city felt as if they were up against a beast. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with John Valiant, author of Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. In May 2016, Fort McMurray, or Fort Mac, the hub of Canada's oil industry and America's biggest foreign supplier, was overrun by wildfire. The multi-billion dollar disaster melted vehicles, turned entire neighborhoods into firebombs, and drove 88,000 people from their homes in a single afternoon. In Fire Weather, a book of history, science, and storytelling, John Valiant warns readers that the fire at Fort Mac was not a unique event, but a shocking preview of what we must prepare for in a hotter, more flammable world. John Valiant's acclaimed, award-winning books of nonfiction, The Golden Spruce and The Tiger, were national bestsellers. His debut novel, The Jaguar's Children, was a finalist for the Rogers Writers' Trust Fiction Prize and the International Dublin Literary Award. Valiant has received the Governor General's Literary Award, British Columbia's National Award for Canadian Nonfiction, the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, and the Pearson Writers Trust Prize for Nonfiction. He lives in Vancouver. John, thanks so much for being here today. Welcome to The Right Question. It's really good to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, as I was reading Fire Weather, which is your new book, it occurred to me that the way you write about a fire or the fire's movements is similar to the way that you write or you wrote about a tiger with a vendetta. The the tone shifts, the sort of vengeful way both a tiger and a, a fire seems to destroy. And uh, I read a New York Times book review that states, Valiant anthropomorphizes fire. Not only does it grow and breathe and search for food, it strategizes. It hunts. It lays in wait for months, even years. Valiant even quotes someone comparing forest fires to farmers cultivating their crops. So my very first question to you, John, is fire alive? That, for me, is a really a central question in the book. And on the one hand, it's, it's simple to answer. You know, in, in, the, in our definition of what life is, we think of something, you know, with a brain, something sentient, something that grows from a seed or grows from an egg or grows from an embryo. And obviously fire does not do that. So fire is not alive in the biological sense. That said, fire shares so many lifelike characteristics that it is more than lively. It is really lifelike. And in the sense that it really can reproduce itself through its embers and sparks, it is an appetite, uh, just as we are. It's driven by oxygen, just as we are. It emits gases and exhaust, just as we do. I mean, both humans and fire emit CO2. And we both have to move around in order to meet our need to oxidize further. So if you are 
dependent on oxygen, you are condemned for your entire life to move through space to find more nourishment. And obviously, fire is trying to find hydrocarbons. You know, it'll burn oil or gas or a plastic chair or a stick of wood or a piece of newspaper. And we're looking, of course, for different kinds of nutrients, but they accomplish the same thing and that they keep us moving, keep us hot, keep us off-gassing, keep us illuminated. And that is a really interesting um, quality that fire has to me. And I think it's part of why we have such a long and deeply entwined relationship. Absolutely. And I want to get to that long history and relationship, but I'm going to finish this reviewer's thought um, about this aliveness. He writes, fire, of course, is not alive in any technical sense, but that doesn't make it a less daunting antagonist. I'm wondering, John, this idea of antagonist or antagonism, I'm wondering, did you approach fire weather in that way, in that kind of character-driven way? Did it ever occur to you to think of fire as a character in, in this book? You know, here's another thing that another aspect of fire that really makes it feel lifelike and ambitious in a way. So, you know, think of a fire burning on a candle and sitting across from someone that you really love to spend intimate time with and how peaceful and romantic and evocative and kind of um, intimating uh, that fire can be. And then think of it around a hearth, how cozy that is, how you want to gather around it. And then imagine uh, Fort McMurray, Alberta, on May 3rd, 2016, and 300-foot flames, five miles wide, barreling into your city. And in that sense, it is an antagonist. It's absolutely terrifying. It's coming for you and everything you care about. It's coming for everyone you know. It will not stop. It's projecting a thousand degree heat in front of it. So everything is desiccating. Everything is volatizing. Everything bursts into flame as soon as the flames arrive. And so in that sense, in that manifestation, fire is absolutely an antagonist. And because this fire persisted around this city for so long, this city of 90,000 people in northern Alberta, uh, eventually the fire was described as a siege event because it mm -hmm. went on for days and days. It came from every angle, depending on the wind. And the people fighting to save that city felt as if they were up against a beast. Absolutely. And they even called it the beast at, at some points in this, um, this experience, in this story. Uh, John, we're recording this interview about a week after smoke from what I just learned are about 450 Canadian wildfires. Uh, it, it's making its way down the east coast of the U.S. So this book, Fire Weather, feels really timely. Uh, in truth, it's been timely for a very long time. You just mentioned Fort McMurray, and I want to step back to the beginning of your book, to this location where you begin fire weather, and it's it's sort of a thread throughout this book, this, this huge fire that happens. I'm wondering if you can tell listeners or orient listeners, you said this Fort McMurray is in Alberta, which it is. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about Fort McMurray, what kind of city it is, um, and, and who lives there. Fort McMurray is an anomaly in North America. It is a petroleum hub of 90,000 people, including fly-in workers, that is really an island of intense industry 
in the boreal forest. And the boreal forest is the, the largest biome on Earth. It's this circumpolar band of forest that runs all the way through Siberia and northern Europe, back around, all the way across the top of Canada and through Alaska. And 600 miles north of the U.S. border is Fort McMurray, this city. And it's in Alberta, which is really the Texas of Canada. It's the same size as Texas. It has a very strong allegiance to the petroleum industry. It has a fractious relationship with its with the federal government. It's got a whole mythic legacy of cattle and horses and wide open spaces and freedom-loving citizens and hard work. And so it's really uh, Canada's own equivalent to Texas. And, and within this powerful, energetic province is this center of the petroleum industry, which is also the source of 90% of Canada's petroleum output. And that's significant because Canada is the largest source of America's foreign imports. So we think of Saudi Arabia or maybe the Gulf of Mexico being a big source, but really Canada is the biggest source of foreign imports for the United States really for the past 20 years. And 90% of that petroleum comes out of Fort McMurray. So it really, even though it's not well known to most Americans, unless you're from Houston, Texas, and they know all about it there, uh, but for the rest of us, it's you know just another place in, in Northern Canada, but it's a really potent place. And so the idea that it would catch on fire, that a whole city would catch on fire is unusual and really quite frightening. And so on May 3rd, 2016, uh, on a particularly dry day during a particularly dry spring in the Canadian boreal, a small fire caught about five or six miles outside of town. And despite early attention from wildfire services in Alberta, they were unable to suppress this fire. And two days later, uh, with a wind shift, it roared into town um, as what's called a rank six boreal fire, that these are huge systems that are really the equivalent to a Category 5 hurricane. And imagine something of that force and energy with a storm cloud, a firestorm cloud, 45,000 feet high, barreling into your city. It's, it's not something that firefighters were prepared for or really had any convincing response to. And it, was, uh, it, it resulted in the largest, most rapid evacuation due to fire in modern times, anywhere on Earth. And it was, what, about 100,000 residents evacuating in a single day? Yeah, technically um, 88,000 people uh, fled, and there was one road out. And so that road was a very hectic traffic jam uh, as fires burned all around and sparks swirled. And the, and the this fire cloud was so big, it's called a pyrocumulonimbus uh, mm -hmm. cloud. And they're, they're more typically what you would see over the top of a volcano like Krakatoa. Uh, they produce their own lightning. They produce their own hail. They can start fires 20 miles away and, and basically perpetuate themselves. They produce hurricane force winds. They're terrifying and they turn their local environment almost into another planet. So in that sense, fire weather is not just the weather in which a wildfire can start, um, the conditions in which a wildfire spreads, but it also, fire weather is also the weather that is created by this fire. That's exactly right. And it's, it's a weird idea, but 
I, I interviewed a lot of people who were inside this fire, either as firefighters trying to fight it against all odds or as citizens trying to escape it with their lives. And the things they saw, the energy that they experienced, it really was as if planet Earth and the planet Venus and the planet Mars had sort of been blended together. And, you know, the dominant color is red and black, you know, not unlike the cover of the book. Uh, the, the temperature is absolutely otherworldly. So really closer to Venus, you know, 900 degrees, 1,000 degrees. Everything is bursting into flame. Uh, and this, these are, you know, in neighborhoods where people raised their children and rode bicycles themselves when they were young. And watching the trees, the, the swing sets, the homes transform literally spontaneously into fireballs um, was so shocking and jarring that I spent a lot of time with people as they really struggled to describe the, the, the process of just integrating the enormity of this rapid shift in their reality. And it was, it was overwhelming. And they were, you know, I got to say, you know, they were exceptionally eloquent about it. And so there's some really long interviews in there of people just describing these moments of awakening and a moment, moments of escape and, and their efforts to come to terms with this new energy that was visiting itself upon them with a ferocity none of them had ever experienced in any other form. You're listening to a conversation with John Valiant. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My next question then is a a two-part question. The first, I'm wondering what made you decide to dive into this project, um, to research this fire in the first place. And the second part of that question, which might be the more relevant to what we're talking about now, I'm wondering what that research process looked like. You were obviously interviewing a lot of residents, uh, people who were on the ground there, but there's so much information in this book apart from that story of the fire. There's historical information, there's scientific information. So I'm wondering how, once you decided to dig into this project, how you went about the research process. So Lauren, the the fire kind of burst into our consciousness uh, really collectively. It became a news item on late on May 3rd, 2016, when uh, news feeds really all over the world started to show this city of 90,000 people completely obscured by this black cloud. And, you know, it was throbbing orange underneath and it was clear that something absolutely terrible was happening in there, but nobody knew what. And we could see from the video that cars were streaming out of it, but nobody knew how many people were still left inside. It was unknown if there were fatalities. Uh, And this state of uncertainty persisted for about three days. People simply didn't know who had got out and who hadn't and what would become of the city because the fire just persisted through the city, flattening neighborhood after neighborhood, literally day after day. So already it had distinguished itself as an unusual uh, historic conflagration. What drew my attention to it beyond that, you know, this was clearly a disaster, the biggest story in Western Canada in a generation, I figured a lot of journalists are going to be piling onto this. 
Um, and it was, wasn't until I started looking more closely at the conditions around the fire, uh, how desperately dry the forest was, how extraordinarily hot the temperature was that day, 30 degrees above normal temperatures for the northern boreal at that time of year. Uh, the humidity that day was 11%, which is comparable to Death Valley in July, which is 2,000 miles south of Fort McMurray. So something clearly really strange and disturbing was going on uh, in the environment. And then, as I look more closely, you know, this is the northern boreal. This is the subarctic. You know, we're closer to Alaska than we are to Montana here. And car-sized blocks of ice were still sitting on the riverbank of the local river, the Athabasca River. Uh, local lakes were still frozen over. There had been frost a few days earlier. And so it occurred to me that if a fire this size, of this intensity, could burn there, imagine what those conditions could produce in a more southern city, like Vancouver, or like Portland, Oregon, or like New Haven, Connecticut. That really frightened me. And honestly, what led me to start investigating this more closely was fear uh, about what this might portend for fire on earth and for urban fire around the world. Uh, and I think there's a, a temptation to think uh, of these disasters, especially when they're far away from us, as Fort McMurray is from most people, that, well, that's something strange that happened there. That doesn't really apply to me. It's really terrible. I'm so sorry about it, but it's really not my problem in an immediate sense. And somehow I realized back in 2016 that, no, this is all of our problem. This is really something that we're, that we're going to share at some point. And unfortunately, if you look at what's happened with fire since 2016, California has had 10 or 15 of its worst fires ever just in the past two years. Oregon had its worst fire ever in 2019. British Columbia, a huge province bigger than Texas, had its worst fire season in history in 2017. So did Chile, another huge uh, country, but in the Southern Hemisphere, all over the world, terrible and often lethal fires have broken out since 2016. And so that gave me uh, a sense of urgency. And one reason this book took so long to write is the story kept changing. There kept being the uh, new fires kept breaking out, uh, new statistics, new milestones kept being surpassed, new records kept being set. So it became a really dynamic story that uh, required, for me, kind of casting the net wider. You know, I, I didn't I didn't want to write a disaster story to begin with. I really wanted to write almost more of a cultural history of fire using the Fort McMurray as, as a way to explore human responses to it and the role of the petroleum industry in our current circumstances. So then once you decided to make this book, or it sounds like the decision was sort of made for you in that um, as you were doing this research, as you were writing this book, more information just kept coming at you. I'm wondering when you decided or how you went about reaching out to residents at Fort Mac or interviewing scientists or all of these things that ultimately provide what you call and, and what ultimately is a very dynamic book about fire. I'm really glad you asked that 
because I, I think my approach is one that I would vi- advise and re- recommend to, to anybody approaching a new topic uh, for the first time. And so I didn't really know much about fire when I started this. And the first thing I did was I went to a wildfire conference. And this was in October of 2016. I was on my way to Fort McMurray to begin interviewing a city where I knew nobody. Uh, so I was really going in cold. And going to this fire conference was the smartest thing I've really almost ever done professionally. Uh, it put me in a kind of enclosed group of fire experts who were there to meet and spend time with each other and reconnect with old friends. And they welcomed my interest and they were incredibly generous and informative. And some of them knew people in Fort McMurray. Some of them knew about other legendary fires that I'd never heard of. And so I got a quick immersion into the lore and culture uh, and power of what I'm going to call 21st century North American fire. And what we're finding and what they were finding, what they were telling me about is the ways in which fire behavior has changed over the past 20 years. And it turns out Alberta is one of the clearest examples of this change in fire behavior. So spending this three days at that conference gave me contacts, it gave me anecdotes, it gave me uh, a feeling of of competence and what some good questions might be to, uh, to ask when I went up to Fort McMurray. And so it really armed me and reassured me. And I had now the beginnings of a, a Rolodex and a contact list. And I did some preliminary interviews there. And so I felt like I had allies in the project. And again, for any other journalist uh, approaching a new topic, go to a conference dedicated to your topic of, of interest. And it will just jumpstart you uh, in a wonderful way. And so from there, it really emboldened me. And I went up to Fort McMurray. I really didn't know anybody there. It's, a, it's quite a conservative town. It's quite a religious town. Um, evangelical Christianity is a strong thread through um, Alberta, just as it is in Texas. And uh, petroleum communities tend to be quite religious, I've found, especially North American ones. So these are you know, populations that, you know, I'm not normally a part of and needed, you know, to be tactful in. And what I have to say about the folks in Fort McMurray, you know, I'm going in there as a journalist, as someone from, a, you know, a liberal city, Vancouver. Uh, journalists are not always held in the highest regard, especially in conservative communities. And, you know, frankly, there was a two-word response that would, that would have been perfectly appropriate to my question about, can you tell me about your experience in the Fort McMurray fire? And no <laughs> one ever said that to me. People were incredibly generous, incredibly forthcoming. And I, I really have to say what makes Fireweather a powerful book is the voices in it, the things that people shared with me in their own words. And so there, there are lots of extended quotes verbatim of people describing extraordinary circumstances that really few human beings have ever experienced, and even fewer have survived. And these folks took the time to share these moments with me. And it, you know, it changed my life. You mentioned the phrase 21st century fire, and you're basically speaking about fires, uh, which, you know, at different temperatures and different humidity levels, fire begins to behave differently. It becomes 
far more dangerous than, say, the, the wildfires that we were familiar with in the 90s or before. But it occurred to me, too, and you go into this a little bit in the book, um, firefighting has to adapt to these 21st century fires as well. It, it becomes a situation where evacuation is the better option than firefighting. Uh, Fort Mac was really an interesting case because there were very few casualties. Can you talk about, I guess, further this 21st century fire and the ways that we're going to have to adapt in order to keep low casualties? And I should say human casualties because, of course, landscape house, you know, there's a lot of um, material casualties to fire. And and animals. And animals, absolutely. The Australian fires of 2019, 2020, they, they estimate the wildlife loss in the billions of animals. You know, so really, it's shocking. And that had never happened before. And so 21st century fire is basically post-climate change fire. And, and you know, what is sort of chilling and horrifying, frankly, is the fact that even petroleum companies' own climate scientists predicted these changes as early as the late 1960s. So climate scientists have been extraordinarily accurate, even though they were predicting a world none of them had ever seen. And by the 1950s, and certainly by the late 60s, they were already predicting that the impacts of industrial CO2 would start being felt in our experience of the climate and climatic behavior around the year 2000. And that's exactly what's happened. And around 2000, we started no, noticing kind of more broken temperature records. And in that time, you know, as you raise the temperature of a landscape, you're going to necessarily have more evaporation. And just think of a bedsheet that you hang out on a, on a line, it's going to dry slowly in damp weather, but on a hot sunny day, it'll dry in half an hour. And frankly, the forest floor is no different. A grassland is no different. When it's in hot, sunny, windy weather, it's going to dry out more quickly. And we've had a lot more of that since 2000. And so these extraordinary temperature records that are being broken all the time in the Arctic and subarctic now uh, really took off around that time. And so the forest has been steadily drying out, not just in the boreal, but also in the Amazon, in the tropics. And as forest systems dry out, the fuels, the hydrocarbons in them become more flammable. And so, you know, one of the early harbingers of that was uh, Canberra, Australia in 2003. That was where the very first fire tornado occurred. And we're not talking about a little fire world kind of spiraling up out of the middle of a fire. We're talking about an EF3 tornado, the kind that tears houses off their foundations. This emerged out of a fire in Canberra, Australia uh, in 2003. People, of course, wondered, will we ever see one of these again? Redding, California, unfortunately, had, their, had its own uh, fire tornado in 2018. Uh, in between, we had many other historic fires and broken temperature records. And so what we're seeing here is this trend as the world heats up and as forest systems dry out, we see this trend toward more intense fire. So firefighters, wild firefighters and municipal firefighters who are trained, they've been trained on 20th century fires. And what they are finding in Redding, California, in Canberra, 
Australia, in Fort McMurray, uh, in Medford, Oregon, a couple of years ago. Their firefighting skills, efforts, equipment are no longer effective against fires of this intensity. So instead, as one Cal Fire... Tune in next week to hear the second half of this conversation with John Valiant, author of Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. Out now from Alfred A. Knopf. Look for more information about John at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me, I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode, and MTPR intern Nani Hamilton helped edit this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.